Good evening. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this event, Australia Votes 2022, Our Place in the Region, uh, which is being brought to you by La Trobe Asia and the University of Western Australia's Defence and Security Institute. My name is Beck Strading and I'm the Director of La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University in Melbourne. I would like to start the event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits. And I would like to pay respect to people uh, both past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations uh, Australians who are present uh, tonight. So it's federal election time here in Australia, one of my favourite times, and we are gearing up to go to the polls uh, on Saturday, although uh, we do have record numbers of citizens who have voted early. During this election, national security and foreign policy has been at the fore, uh, including crucial questions of how Australia should best negotiate uh, fraught relations with China uh, and improve relations with our Pacific neighbours, particularly following the fallout of China's security pact with the Solomon Islands. Foreign and defence policy doesn't always get a good run in Australian election campaigns. So this particular campaign does provide us with an excellent opportunity to reflect on how political parties, uh, minor parties, independents, view Australia's key security challenges and its place in an increasingly uncertain uh, and contested region. So the next government, whether it is led by the Liberal National Coalition or the Labor Party, whether it's a majority or minority formed government, will likely shape Australia's engagement with international and regional affairs for the next generation to come. So tonight we're going to discuss the following questions. What does the 2022 election campaign reveal about Australia's perceptions of its security within this increasingly contested region? Is the politicisation of national security a positive development? And to what extent uh, do issues of foreign and national security, foreign policy and national security shape the way that people actually vote? Uh, and what do the often heated, occasionally bombastic, national security discussions mean uh, for Asian communities within Australia. So I'm delighted to be joined by our wonderful panel of experts tonight. Uh, I would like to begin by introducing Professor Peter Dean, who is the Chair of Defence Studies at the UWA uh, Defence and Security Institute uh, and Director of the Defence and Security Institute and the Defence and Security Program, and who is a co-collaborator on today's event. Welcome, Peter. I'd also like to welcome my terrific colleague here at La Trobe University, Associate Professor Andrea Carson, who is a political scientist and an Associate Professor in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Next on our list is Sarah Eisen, who is a political reporter uh, who has had a front row seat in this election campaign as a member for the Australian's Canberra Press Gallery Bureau. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks. And last but certainly not least is Jennifer Shu, Research Fellow in the Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program at Lowy Institute. We are delighted to have you here as well tonight, Jennifer. Hi. 
So we will have time for Q&A at the end of this session. So as we go through, please feel free to put your questions in the Q&A box. Uh, I'm going to start, though, with you, Peter. Uh, you have recently written a piece for Lowy uh, Institute on this very topic, which we can share through the chat. Uh, but there's suggestions that this has been a khaki election. Has it been a khaki election? What are the key security issues that have been raised over the last few weeks? Well, thanks, Beck, and it's really great to be here. I, I love this time of year. I'm a political junkie. There's nothing better than a democracy sausage, although I will be one of those people who's voting early because I'm travelling. So I'm going to vote after this, in fact, um, and then I'm going to go home and have sausages so I have my very own democracy sausage. Um, in terms of your question, look, I think the, for the coalition, for Scott Morrison and his team, they wanted very much to make this a car key election. If you look at the way they approached some of the elections uh, issues on the leading to the, calling the election campaign, it was very clear they wanted to run on the economy, it was very clear that they wanted to run on basically the, the problem of Anthony Albanese and, and being untested and highlighting his weaknesses in what they saw as economic areas. But they also wanted to run on national security. And that played in a, what they thought would be a couple of really key areas for them. Uh, I kept pointing out, as I have done during the campaign, that Anthony Albanese has not held a national security portfolio um, in his time in government or any shadow ministry portfolios. They've run very hard on the... Um, the coalition's record defence spending that they've had since they've been in government, contrasting that or attempting to contrast that to what they perceived as lower defence spending under the last years of a Labor government when they were last in office. And, of course, China has been the big issue. It's the issue that's dominated many parts of our international debate. Um, and, of course, it's, it's come in many ways to dominate what's happened during the election campaign. And, of course, well, the coalition tried very much, and if we saw what they did, say, towards Richard Miles, in Parliament just before the election campaign where they tried to sort of paint him as a Manchurian candidate. Um, and that, that attack has come back up through the, some of the media um, and some of the commentary from the government So during that campaign. And the reason they did this is they generally have been pretty strong on national security. If we go back to the last election campaign, one of the polls I saw was that Scott Morrison built, beat Bill Short about 14 points on national security issues. And that's a whopping margin, you know, on, on a policy area. And if you can remember that that long ago, I mean, I know it seems very long, a six-week election campaign, let alone the last one that we had before that. But in the sort of week leading into the last um, campaign we had, border security became an issue again, uh, refugees and boat people became an issue again, and Morrison really outmaneuvered Shorten on that. So you could sort of say that national security and border security played a key role in sort of Morrison's miracle victory last time. And leading into the election, they very much, the coalition, wanted it to be. Of course, Labor wanted to talk about healthcare and they wanted to talk about the pandemic and they wanted to talk about the government's record. They didn't necessarily want to talk about um, national security. But I'd have to say, uh, by the time we get now to the end of the election campaign, Labor seemed very happy to be talking about national security because it just hasn't gone the government's way. What I wrote about today was two concepts about friction and chance. Friction is where, you know, in election campaigns or in politics where even the little things seem to get really hard and they've been pretty hard to get traction for for the government and then chance has come along and that's the Solomon Islands Security Pact with China. And as that wonderful philosopher, heavyweight boxer Mike Tyson says, everyone's got a wonderful plan until they get punched in the face. And the coalition really had a plan here around national security 
not expecting that chance would come along. And I have to say, it looks like Solomon Islands on this particular area has, has really punched the government hard in the face. Yeah, so I wanted to ask about um, Solomon Islands uh, in particular, but also you mentioned Richard Miles and the idea of the Manchurian candidate. I mean, there has been a sense in which uh, some of the national security discussions have been politicised and there may be, I think, a difference between politicising national security and weaponising national security uh, for the purposes of uh, electoral victory, if you like, uh, because it seems like uh, it's important that we have discussions around national security and they should be frank uh, discussions about Australia's national security. And there's also an extent to which bipartisanship on issues of national security might not always be the best uh, sort of thing for the country, particularly when we're a democracy and we should be having these discussions. But perhaps there's been a line that has been crossed in some of the accusations that have been bandied about. So I'd like to know what your view is on this issue. Bipartisan is an interesting point to start with there. So we've heard for, for a long time, decades and decades, about the need for bipartisan on sort of national security issues. I'm actually not a great fan of, you know, complete bipartisanship. When when both sides agree, that's great, you know. But when they disagree, it's it's a policy area like every other. There's no reason we shouldn't be debating the economy or health policy, social security policy, you know, housing policy, whatever it might be. And if there's a genuine difference and difference of opinion, I think that's great. We don't always have to be in lockstep on national security, but it has been a bit of the mantra for a while. And what Labor really did, and I think did very effectively as part of their sort of small strategy approach that some people have pointed out on, is they've clung very closely to the government on a lot of national security issues in an endeavour to sort of neutralise it. I think Labor never thought they could really win on national security in the election. All they had to do to win, though, is kind of neutralise it and not make it an issue. So they agreed on the 2% GDP of defence funding. They agreed on, you know, um, a lot of things that the government um, announced and sort of clung very closely um, to them on on that type of issue. When it came to the Solomon Islands, though, and uh, that sort of gave them a bit more room to point out a point of difference. So I think, you know, one of the things we'd seen, Penny Wong had been very quiet. In fact, early on in the campaign, a couple of the Labor women had been quite quiet, some of the most effective campaigners, and that might be a, a hangover, I think, from the from the Mean Girls um, issue that happened just before the campaign. But the Solomon Islands really allowed Penny Wong to come to the fore, allowed her to put out a point of difference, a way that the um, government would do things differently. And it took the agenda a bit on the, off the government in a couple of ways. They wanted to talk about defence spending. They wanted to talk about hard power. And, of course, the Solomon Islands brought the issues up of aid, of diplomacy. Um, And, of course, the government didn't have a great record to run on here. And, of course, it had a number of issues in the international sphere, such as with, you know, President Macron calling our Prime Minister a liar and a few other things that hadn't gone down so well. So that gave suddenly a bit of space for Labor to point out a point of difference, um, as it did on on how defence money was spent. So AUKUS deal was great. But AUKUS deal costs us $5.5 billion in a submarine that's never going to go to sea and never going to be built. So it sort of gave Labor some opportunities um, that, to, to grasp onto. But on the debate itself, it did start to get really shrill. Um, you know, the Manchurian candidate stuff was really unedifying in my view. The government chose to do that in Parliament behind parliamentary privilege. Um, and it just didn't work. I mean, if you look at opinion polling leading into the election, just before the election campaign, it said that Labor was actually ahead of the coalition on managing the relationship with China. 
So uh, sort of one of the comments I would say is I think the coalition went into this trying to play, you know, the last war, fight the last war rather than the current war. So border protection, you know, Anthony Albanese really stumbled there in the first debate on border protection, but it got no traction with the populace. You know, there's been no sort of tamper issue that's coming in to save the government. And in fact, the Solomon Islands issue, which is the kind of tamper equivalent, the other way, because it seemed to happen on their watch. And then I think when you when you got to last Friday, I think a couple of things happened. I would call Scott Morrison's, you know, I'm a bulldozer moment, the kind of real Julia Gillard moment. If you remember back to that election when, oh, the real Julia Gillard will stand up now. And it's like, oh, geez, obviously things are going bad and the, the focus groups are not giving some good feedback. And that kind of looked like a, you know, the, uh, the old Fonzie jump the shark moment in the campaign where the prime minister was like, and in the same day is when Peter Dutton came out and said, oh, there's finally an on-water matter he wanted to talk about, and that's a spy ship off the coast of Western Australia, which he then went too far in, in saying this was an act of aggression, but it was in international waters, and it's what we do with our own ships in the South China Sea, in Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. So I think parts of the debate got really shrill, um, particularly around the China question. And the interesting thing is none of it stuck. And I think because the populace... Uh, are not seeing it the same way that the government's seeing it. So I think where the government thought they could get real traction, I'm painting Richard Miles as a Manchurian candidate, and that's come up time and again. It just doesn't seem to have resonated with the public. And the same way that by the time we get to Friday and the, the spy ship issue, I mean, you're getting um, quite conservative commentators coming out and saying, that the, you know, people who are normally naturally aligned to the government, saying it's, it's, it's desperation, it's shrill. So that's been a really worrying part of the debate. Um, there are questions about China that we have to discuss. There are policy issues that we have to discuss. But the manner and way in which we discuss them, um, you know, it could be better. Yes, I think we've got to excuse politicians in an election campaign sometimes. I often point into other countries when some wild things are said and point out their democracies and they're in an election campaign. We've got to understand the domestic politics lens of this. But it has been rather unedifying, I think, in part. So not always bipartisanship, I think, is good. Debating the issues is good, um, you know, making wild accusations. And I think the, the one that really, really shone through in that first debate was when the Prime Minister basically said to Anthony Albanese, why are you always siding with China? And said, basically, if you don't agree with the government's point of view, then you're, you're basically disloyal. And that was a broad paintbrush, I think, he not tried to get Labor with, but actually he was so broad with the way he cast that in the debate is he would capture almost anyone in the Australian community who disagreed with him. And I think that that's is where they've been stepping over the line and going too far. And what's really interesting is just not resonating with the public the way, say, you know, refugees, boat people and some other issues in the past have. Well, I think that's a perfect place to bring Jennifer into the conversation uh, around these sort of issues around weaponising national security, particularly the discourse around China and what the sort of impacts that this might have uh, on Asian Australians uh, and whether or not this does actually impact votes, this kind of narrative. Uh, you're the author uh, or one of the authors on the second Lowy Institute's Being Chinese in Australia report. So you're in the perfect position to, to sort of answer this question about how uh, these national security debates uh, affect uh, Chinese Australians and their sense of inclusion within the Australian nation. Thanks, Beck, and thanks for Peter for making a really nice segue in for me. Um, so in our report, most Chinese Australians continue to report pride in Australian life and culture in 2021. 
um, but this has fallen in the past year. So 71% say they take pride in Australia's way of life and culture, but that has fallen to um, by about 13 points since 2020. And the number of Chinese Australians that express, you know, sense of belonging has also fallen um, to 64%. It was 71% in um, 2020. We've also conducted focus groups over the last two years with Chinese Australians. And from these groups, um, and this is something that I'll get into a little bit later, is that the majority of Chinese Australians that we have um, talked to in our focus groups in the last two years say that the reporting of China in Australian media outlets is too negative. And we, this, we see this in our survey results. And how we've seen China played out and portrayed in the Australian media and by politicians over the last five weeks campaign, it is that um, China is a national security threat. It is a challenge to Australia. It's a challenge to regional security. And this puts many Chinese Australians in an uneasy position. And as Peter mentioned in that first debate between um, the Prime Minister and the opposition leader on the 20th of April, in defending his government, the PM asked the opposition leader, you know, what I don't understand is when something of this significant takes place, why would you take China's side? And that kind of language doesn't really ring of cohesion, right? It it's a really sort of a us versus them mentality. Um, it's, you know, as Peter says, it's suggestive whose side are you on? And so I think, but I think at the same time, Chinese Australians acknowledge Australia's need to ensure national and regional security. So um, Australia's participation in the Quad, in AUKUS, but there is in our focus groups that sort of question about motive um, as Australia turns to its traditional allies like the US and the UK. For some, um, they see it as a desire or an intent to constrain or contain China's ambition. Um, many Chinese Australians who've immigrated um, from the PRC are undoubtedly proud of China's extension to, um, you know, to the global, uh, to be a global player. And the Chinese party state um, and so do many ethnic Chinese are proud of China's economic achievements and social achievements. Um, and it, the party state, as well as, you know, a lot of ethnic Chinese who have emigrated want to see China be a peer to the US, not the junior partner, but a peer. And sort of the, the in the foreign minister's debate, foreign policy debate, um, it's the shadow foreign minister last week said, you know, China has changed. We should start from that premise. And I think Chinese Australians recognise that China has changed, but it, they want to see that recognition as the positives of China's change, right? Um, the economic achievements, um, whatever you might say about how it achieved poverty alleviation, um, being able to host two Olympic Games, in rapid succession. These are the things that um, Chinese Australians who have come from the PRC want to be recognised for that their home country has been able to achieve. So, and they want to see, they want to be included in the discussion, not to be talked about or talked to, um, but participate in the discourse. And I think, you know, that, that recognition of China's achievements along with sort of the focus on China's um, 
position in the region uh, would be a start, you know, recognising China's achievement. But I think it's also particularly important to, um, to bear in mind that when we talk about the Chinese-Australian community, it's not this homogenous voting bloc. Um, not all who see themselves as Chinese-Australians come from the PRC. Many have immigrated from Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and these um, Chinese Australians identify with um, their, you know, cultural heritage from Malaysia or Singapore, but they have a very different view about China, right? Um, if you've come from Malaysia or Singapore, your view of China is going to be very different from those who've immigrated from the PRC. So I think, you know, we need to, you know, think about that. Um, so I think, you know, when we talk about a voting bloc, this is Australia Votes um, um, panel, but I think, you know, we need to sort of disaggregate it a little bit and think about, you know, who are the Chinese Australians we're talking about. That is a really important point, and I'm glad that you made it, Jennifer, and there's some comments in the chat that go to that uh, point as well. And we might get back to some of the differences on key issues a little bit later, but I wanted to ask you, I mean, you mentioned uh, that there's a, a perception that the Australian media, media coverage in particular is too negative. Uh, do you think that's true of uh, this election campaign, so too negative on China, and is there a chance in which uh, the, the sort of the China threat narratives actually have an effect on how people will vote? Right. So to, to your first point, so the, our survey results, which were the survey was conducted at the end of last year, um, showed that 57% of Chinese Australians said Australian media reporting about China is too negative, which is a 7 point increase since 2020. And I'm just going to rattle off a couple of headlines um, on news stories and op-eds over the last five weeks. So first one is Labor Deputy Richard Miles' run of visits to China Embassy. Second is Teal Independents want us to surrender to China. Chinese influence phenomenal. Um, so I think, you know, those kind of headlines does indicate some um, how, some perception of how the Australian media um, want to or seek to portray China. And this isn't just in an election campaign. I think that kind of tone um, has rippled throughout headlines, um, you know, over the last several years. So with regards to your second point, I haven't done any polling on Chinese Australians and their intentions on how they intend to vote in this election but a recent study carried out by researchers in Deakin and Monash Universities where they looked at WeChat articles over the last 11 months um, suggested that the Liberal Party has been criticised by Chinese-Australian WeChat users for its um, militaristic position towards China and um, their alignment with the US. Um, WeChat, um, Chinese-Australian WeChat users say that... Um, uh, they're not, Labor isn't particularly liked due to their loose humanitarian immigration scheme, but um, ALP is more preferable compared to the Liberal Coalition due to its perceived friendlier approach to China. Um, in our survey report, 28% of Chinese Australians felt closest to the Liberal National Party. Um, and this was compared to 42% in 2020. So that's quite a 
significant drop. I'm not going to make any predictions as to or suggestions as why that might be the case, but I'm just going to put those numbers out there too for you to consider. Those that felt closest to the ALP stood at 25%, um, and this was compared to 21% in 2020. And 33% um, were in the I don't know, none or swing category, 7% green, 7% independence. So these, just to note that these figures were gathered in the last quarter of 2021, but the pollsters among us might be able to tell us more whether they align with the broader Australian population, I suspect, but maybe Andrea can speak to that. So I think, you know, there's quite a sizable uh, significant Chinese Australian population who are in that I don't know uncertain category and 7% for independence, which sounds plausible. Um, given where we are in the campaign at the moment. Well, it is a good time to bring Andrea in and we've got a plug for uh, Andrea's podcast below the line in the chat. If you haven't been listening to that through the election campaign, you really should because uh, it's a really excellent podcast. Uh, but I wanted to ask Andrea, uh, as, as Jennifer prefaced, uh, a more general view about voting preferences uh, among the electorate. I mean, even if uh, the government has uh, sought to emphasise its national security credentials, to what extent do you think Australians care that much about national security or foreign policy issues that it will actually swing their vote? Thanks, Beck. I guess the first thing I would say is um, well done on the excellent commentary from Jennifer and Peter. Uh, they've raised some really important issues about um, summing up where we're at in this election campaign um, and drawing on Peter's point about what we call issue ownership as political scientists, the idea that certain issues are favoured by uh, voters tend to think certain parties do issues better than others, uh, and as Peter pointed out, for the coalition, typically that is defence, foreign affairs and um, the economy. And for Labor, the two major parties, it's typically education and health. Um, so when it comes to voting, what we do see, and we've got a little bit of data around this, that uh, with people making their vote intention and what they think is the most important issue, overall, uh, foreign affairs and defence is number eight, which is a long way down. And we know that people vote for very different reasons. Um, there's not one single reason about how people vote, but among them uh, issues of competency, of whether they perceive that a party's kept its promises, which we call promissory democracy. Uh, but they also vote because they might be rusted on to a particular political party out of um, family connection. And for some people, it's about particular issues. So when we look at most important issues, it's those one or two or even the top three issues that might shift votes. So eight is a long way down. However, having said that, there are big partisan differences when it comes to national security and foreign policy. And um, Peter has touched on this as well, where what we see, and I'm using vote compass data here that the uh, is a uh, channeled through the ABC. It's uh, a program that I've been working on since 2013 and it deals with large data. And this particular sample was 35,000 Australians. Um, and when we look it down by partisan differences, we see a really strong cleavage that um, national security and foreign policy is the second most important issue for conservative voters. 
um, but it's a long way down for Labor and Greens voters. So we can see that the coalition is playing to the base by elevating um, national security issues. But um, I like the uh, quote that you used there, Peter, about the punch in the nose because the Solomon Islands Chinese um, security pact is a real two-edged sword in playing out in this campaign. And we see that because uh, there's a narrative that the Labor Party's been trying to run around waste and time pressures around the submarine deal that's been sunk. And then it puts egg on the face of the coalition about what plan did they have under their watch. There's been this security pact that's been done with the Solomon Islands, which really speaks to um, maybe a neglect to soft diplomacy and other um, avenues about Australia's role in the region. So elevating that topic to play to the base comes at a cost because it also rise, or raises the vulnerability or um, perhaps the neglect that the coalition has paid to those issues. Um, the other thing I would say, and I think Jennifer's absolutely right, that the Australian-born Chinese communities um, are in some pretty marginal seats, like the seat of Chisholm in Melbourne, uh, even John Howard's old seat of Bennelong, and they're not an homogenous block. We uh, had the impression from the last election that Chisholm was won based on whisper campaigns going on on WeChat, and the literature doesn't really bear that up, the studies that have been done. In fact, surveys of Australian-born Chinese show that one of the most important issues for them is cost of living as it is for the majority of the electorate. Um, the other, I guess, substantial point to make here is that media coverage, yes, has been very negative. Um, it's been negative from a particular side of the media cycle with due respect to fellow panellists, but it's been mainly the Murdoch press that have been um, pushing the China issue. But we have a famous adage um, coming out of the 60s that the media might tell you what to think about but it doesn't tell you what to think, that because the coverage there is there doesn't mean it translates um, necessarily over into informing the vote, but there certainly has been a high degree of negativity. Um, the other thing that we can look at in the data is that uh, the national security issues are much more an issue for decided voters rather than undecided voters. So there may not be a huge advantage for the coalition there. And again, showing that it plays to the base, it's older voters that elevate these issues, older conservative voters. And unsurprisingly, it's a bigger issue for Australians living in the Northern Territory and Western Australia, um, where we do have security bases. Um, but when it comes to the question of should uh, Australia take a tougher stance on China, 58% of Australians say yes to that question. And again, we see those partisan splits. It's much more strongly cleaved on the um, conservative side of politics. Um, an interesting one, though, is you almost see the reverse when it comes to whether we should be spending more money on foreign aid. Uh, the more progressive side of politics, the Greens and Labor voters are saying, yes, we should be spending more on foreign aid, which is a form of soft diplomacy. Um, and yet older and conservative voters uh, usually record that they think it should stay about where it is. So I hope that gives a little bit of an idea of how this translates into both media coverage and maybe voter choice. Yeah, that's really interesting data you have there, Andrea. And, you know, you've discussed 
um, some of the issues with your political science hat on. And now I want you to put your Associate Professor of Journalism hat on uh, because you also are a former journalist and uh, uh, an expert in, in media. You've been keeping a close eye on media reportage. Is there a sense in which uh, the media has been preoccupied with national security uh, or foreign policy issues in this election or has it is it being driven by particular parties I guess I'm asking who are the, who are the agenda setters here when it comes to to the the, the campaigns that get canvassed in election uh, campaigns it's an interesting question because normally we know and every election cycle a group of political scientists get together and we write a book out of ANU on how the campaign unfolded and I usually look at media coverage and we know from UK studies in the US um, and it's also true of, of Australia that normally during an election campaign the media follows the politician's lead. They write up the press releases, they write up whatever the high-vis event is and um, and it's very much a reactionary response. But in this election campaign, we have had a real news event occur, and that is the um, Chinese Solomon Islands deal, which is probably not something that the coalition wanted um, to land in the middle of an election campaign and delivered coverage that they couldn't control in the same way that they can control when they write a press release or they do the high-vis um, event and they're trying to generate messages in a certain direction. Um, so the coverage has been in reaction to real events that have been occurring, as well as some of these very scripted messages, and you've already touched on them with the Manchurian candidate. Um, one thing that we haven't spoken about is that Richard Miles, who was in the crosshairs here, um, did get COVID, which took him out of action for a week of the campaign after it took um, Albanese out of action. And that might have actually helped Labor a little bit, not having him quite so visible and gave a chance for some of the front bench, um, shadow front bench, to take over the messaging and doing it rather confidently. Um, you've mentioned Penny Wongbeck, but also Jason Clare has been strong on that. And it gave Labor a chance to pivot the debate a bit more around to the issues that they want to talk about. Um, which typically are usually healthcare. I must say I am surprised how little has focused on um, hospitals, but there has been that emphasis on aged care and some headlines there. Well, all, give, uh, all good journalists will give right of reply. So, Sarah, this is your chance to uh, respond to what's already been said. There's been a lot of things mentioned about the media as a kind of homogenous group, but I'm wondering um, from where you're sitting uh, in the press gallery, what do you see as the key issues that are going to affect the election? Key issues, I think the main one that both parties are really concerned about is definitely cost of living. Uh, that is the really, really big one that has dominated both uh, trails when I was both with uh, Albanese and with Morrison in the last four weeks. That was the top issue. But with the Solomon Islands, as we've all said already, with that happening, that wasn't at all <laughs> planned by, um, by the government. That was something that was very, very concerning for the coalition because they knew 
They didn't play out well within days of that happening. That was branded as the biggest policy failure of like our time. And for once, uh, it was actually the ball being in Labor's court when it came to national security and defence. It's always one that the coalition loves to use and weaponize, as we've seen. And with Peter Dutton, as Peter was talking about, mentioning that Chinese spy ship off the WA coast, you could see an effort to sort of try to reclaim the space uh, and, and drive that narrative. But it's a really interesting election because this isn't how that's worked. In those two, in two ways, which is the Solomons, um, and also with the government even before the Solomons was happening, really weaponizing the whole China thing against Labor, a Manchurian candidate, all of that stuff being thrown across the house and so on. But it actually, as Peter said, yeah, not impressing voters. This thing of, oh, we're better on China and Labor's softer on China, um, really working against them. And in the first debate between uh, Morrison and Albanese, that was the Sky debate in the first couple of weeks, when Morrison tried to talk about China and tried to say something about, you know, you're saying with China or you're, we, we know who China would, would prefer. You could hear an audible groan from the audience. Like they were so unhappy with that being politicised. So that has come up a bit, um, but it is very often dependent on where we are. So like the, the Solomon and the Defence issue came up a lot when Labor was in Darwin or, or something, and then they had some funding that they they announced for the National um, the Critical Care Centre, and they also talked about the Port of Darwin, of course, and so on. So some of it is about where you are, and they'll take advantage of that. But more broadly, I think both parties do realise that what Australians are caring about the most is the cost of living question, is how they're going to afford to live in this country for the next sort of, you know, three years. And that includes things like housing, as we've seen, that includes, you know, groceries, petrol, if childcare is going to become more affordable. So as much as the national security and defence issues have been running underneath, they have on many days paled in comparison to these greater questions wages you know interest rates all of that stuff has really dominated because people do know both parties do know that's where when voters are thinking oh what do i want really top of mind is how am i going to afford you know petrol how am i going to get this grocery bill whereas you know i, I don't know how much of a, a vote winner or at least a decider it is right now for that to be the national security question i think it's a good way to score political points and maybe to try to undermine the credibility of each party um, as best as you can. I think Labor's done that more successfully than the coalition when it comes to, you know, foreign policy failures and so on. Um, but it's not it's not something that I think, you know, is going to decide the vote. Yeah, that's really interesting. And actually going back to a point that Andrea made, I'm surprised that COVID-19, the pandemic, hasn't actually been a significant issue. It's almost like we're like, we're over that. And this, I know, and Morrison said this, um, at, it, we were at like an electronic manufacturing centre a few days ago, it was like last week. And he was saying, you know, he started to use that language, we're shifting gears now and it's this new thing and da-da-da-da. And you literally had a journalist be like, Hey, hi. Um, like, there's still this many cases and this many deaths today of COVID. Like, what? We're not out of it. And Morrison was like, "That's why I said we're getting out of it, not that we're out of it." And we were all just kind of like, "That's just—it's a weird thing." How he's really trying to jump the gun on like we're past this this moment in time, particularly ahead of a flu season, where a lot of the health profession is really concerned about what that could mean um, in terms of COVID and the flu. A lot of people are getting second rounds of COVID as well. Um, but it hasn't really, yeah, come into play that much, even though the opposition leader literally got COVID-19 and it was this unprecedented moment in history where you had a leader of one of the major parties just benched for seven days of a campaign. 
it's yeah it, it seemed like it just dominated our lives there for two years and suddenly the election campaign and it's just sort of back here in the background it's really interesting and it's also interesting because it's all it's almost like you know pandemics aren't going to happen again in the future so what kind of lessons have we taken from the last two years uh, but I wanted to get Sarah back to back to the point about whether or not uh, national security is a vote winner because I wonder whether when governments or political parties try to keep national security on the agenda it's really about crowding out other issues that might be spots of weakness mm. uh, and so I wanted your view on this how um, how effective has it been for, for governments in trying to set the media agenda? What's your view on the, the abilities or the capacity of government or parties uh, to shape uh, what journalists are reporting on uh, in this mm. way? I'll give you an example. The, 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 my first kind of uh, thought with the reporting on Friday about the, the spy ship off the coast mm. of uh, Western Australia in, in Australia's exclusive economic zone was this is just the government trying to distract uh, detract attention from other issues mm. and then I thought do the journalists allow this to happen so what's your view on that well I think as you heard from Peter there there was a lot of commentary about how it was a distraction um, which was good to see I think it was so clear the gut and it was within amid that turning point for Labor kind of pulling ahead of the coalition when it comes to the election and conference really you know Labor having this confidence the coalition starting to get a bit desperate so in that context journalists were really able to see it uh, but more broadly taking away that specific um you know incident I guess I mean I do think if there is stuff going on and there has been a lot of stuff going on that's not very pretty to talk about um in parliament when it comes to you know women's safety or yeah especially for a government like coalition like wages or whatever you know when you're when we're reporting on the same thing every day and we were there for a while with women's safety and so on or, or it might be something like wages being able to kind of go something like, oh, you know, a spy ship, this headline grabber absolutely has an effect. Absolutely. is like, oh, that's such a big deal. It's like something from the movies, you know, wow. Like it definitely grabs attention. And because it's an attention grabber, media knows that. They know it will grab the attention of readers and audiences and so on. So it can work to, to divert attention, particularly when you are like hammering on the same stuff, like I said. For women's safety has eight months and uh for a lot of the stuff that dogs the government it's not something that's come up for a week and goes away a lot of it's reoccurring themes so definitely i think there can be like national security can be this big like crazy life or death thing and of, of course that's so like distracting for us and probably for i imagine a lot of people because it does suddenly sound like oh gosh i'm suddenly stopping from my nine-to-five job and thinking about there could be a base in the Solomon Islands of China. That's insane, right? Um, but I do think it can be really effectively used, often to the detriment probably of media and, and, and uh, Australian viewers and readers to really quickly and effectively put attention exactly where you want it as a government. It's just that bigger a space and that, you know, that kind of space that's so important and scary and dramatic and all of that so I definitely think there's the risk of that for sure but luckily it's <laughs> in the last few days as Peter said um, on that last spy ship off the coast I think it was just so clear what the government was trying to do in that specific instance and we had only just started turning up the heat on the government over the past sort of two or three days that it just didn't quite have the same effect as maybe it would have had in a different context so in that time the media they made a they made a bit of an effort there to to catch them out <laughs> on that <laughs> 
Yeah, it was interesting also um, the difference in the tone between the Prime Minister and the Defence Minister on that issue. Uh, and there's been a few moments in, in national security and foreign policy issues where th that there's been a kind of uh, a difference uh, of, of, of how they talk about these particular issues. But I did want to talk, I did want to ask the whole panel this question. Before I do, uh, please feel free to put your questions into the Q&A I see that there are some there already, which is fantastic. And this is my last question before moving into to Q and A. And I'm going to ask everyone this: uh, the key topic of uh, this event is Australia's place in the region. I mean, we've talked a lot about China, we've talked about Solomon Islands, uh, but we haven't really talked a lot about other important partners. And, and I think that reflects the fact that. The election campaign hasn't really talked a lot about other partners. You know, we haven't heard a lot about Indonesia, for example. Uh, we haven't heard a lot about India or Japan either. Even um, the US alliance hasn't really come into things, except, you know, when we talk about the Quad or AUKUS. Uh, and, and this was something that struck me while I was watching the um, foreign minister's debate on Friday. I'm not even sure you can call it a debate. It was just kind of a discussion about foreign policy. Uh, and, and so that there wasn't a lot of information, I think, about how Australia sees itself in the region. But I want to know uh, what our panel thinks about this issue, what the election campaigning to you uh, reveals about Australia's pol Australian politicians, how they see our place uh, in Asia, or if you're in Western Australia, the Indo-Pacific. Peter, I'll start with you. Well, you know, um, being the Perth representative here on the Indian Ocean, yes, it is the Indo-Pacific. That is uh, government policy. It's a bipartisan position between Labor and Liberal about using the Indo-Pacific. I will point out, brought by uh, brought in by a, a Labor Defence Minister in Stephen Smith, backed by a, uh, a Liberal Foreign Minister in Julie Bishop from Western Australia, and in between there, another uh, Liberal Party uh, Defence Minister in David Johnson as well. So the, the WA people have certainly had an influence on this. I think if I can make one quick comment before I, I jump into the substance of your question, riffing off sort of what Sarah said, I think the other thing that the Solomon Islands did is bring back, I think, a bit of a, a perception that had formed about our Prime Minister and our government about not turning up, not holding a hose, not my job. And when we saw the Solomon Islands issue come up, it's like, well, what did the government do about this? They heard about it last August and they didn't seem to be there. The foreign minister hadn't gone. You know, they, they sent the minister for the Pacific. The prime minister hadn't really got involved. And it just really seemed to be fit easily to construct a narrative around this. It's another place where the government hadn't turned up and the prime minister hadn't done his job. And, of course, international policy is exactly, you know, the prime minister's job. They generally, as Sarah points out and Andrew's pointed out, they don't get elected on foreign defence policy issues. They get elected on domestic political issues like the cost of living. But they find themselves as Prime Minister largely dealing with international issues at least 50% of the time. And then I think to, to segue back that to your question, I think what, what it's really revealed, and this, is, this has been great, it's been refreshing in one sense to have a genuine debate about approaches to the region. And I think it has pointed out a bit of contrast between this version of a coalition government. Remember, we have had you know, three PMs in, in the kind of term that they've been in office. But this particular coalition government has been very focused on hard power. So the Prime Minister and, and Peter Darton, all they wanted to talk about in their version of the car key election was being tough on China and defence spending. 
and defence capability in the AUKUS agreement with the United States. So they were giving out a, a very view of this sort of view of the international region. Is it being a defence issue? Is it being a problem? Is it being something we needed to have, you know, uh, guns, not butter, to solve um, this issue with? And, and I think that's perception, and I think this might play in a bit to the psychology of, of those two people, of, of Dutton, who's seen as a bit of a hard man in, you know, in the coalition, and the Prime Minister, who likes to see himself as a bulldozer, as he said. I think that's played really nicely into their concept of themselves, but also the concept, as Andrew pointed out, of where their base is around defence, so being tough on defence and tough on China and tough in this particular regard. The Solomon Islands issue opened up then the whole question of more complexity in international security, about foreign aid, about diplomacy, about regional relationships, about climate change and how it played out in the, in the region. And so what that allowed the opposition to do was start to talk about those issues and start to talk about the lack of statecraft we've had in Australia, where we're not coordinating different elements of national power to achieve the sort of ends that our government wants. And, and the government was starting to see is, is that same thing. Oh, this seemed to be more about partisan short-term political gain than national interest. And that's where there's been a narrative painted around the Prime Minister on a number of other issues. And now it was being painted around the issue of defence and security, which they're normally really strong on. So it sort of gave the sense that the government is about defence, it's about the US alliance, it's about concerns about China, and it's about concerns about the region. And that kind of old school idea of the sort of fear of the region, the fear of the fears that, that lie out there in Asia. And that contrasted when Penny Wong got involved in the debate, and then Jason Clare and some others, and then Albanese himself. And I think it was only yesterday or today, I think it was today that Penny Wong came out with a discussion about Southeast Asia, which is the first time it was really talked about in the campaign and saying, well, we need a Southeast Asia office like we need the Pacific office because we can't seem to be losing Southeast Asia like we're losing the Pacific as well. And what that, I think, brought back is a traditional bit of divide that sits underneath these political parties that the Labor Party has been more about multilateralism. The Labor Party has been about more about diplomacy and aid as well as defence, this sort of different approach to the region and sort of about working with the region. And I noticed Albanese was asked about going to the Quad. If he becomes Prime Minister on Saturday night, he's off to the Quad. And he sort of contrasted that. He said, well, I had committed that the first place I was going to go was Indonesia. You know, it's one of the few times I've heard Indonesia mentioned in the campaign. And he said, you know, he will go to the Quad, but he will go to Indonesia as quickly as possible. So I think you're seeing a bit of a contrast. And it actually goes back to, if you look at some traditional views about the way Labor and the Liberals had views, viewed the world. And this goes back, you know, to the, the 80s and the 90s, to the sort of Gareth Evans, Bob Hawke era against, you know, the Howard era and the Keating and Howard stuff about are we part of Asia or have we let that drift away from the United States? And I think what Labor's trying to say is, yes, the US alliance is critical and important, but it's something we should leverage to have better relationships in the region where the coalition under this government has been very much focused on that relationship um, with the United States and on the, the hard power defence stuff. So I think it's shown a few things about, I wouldn't say about Australia's place in the region, but I think how the two main political parties view Australia's place in the region is how I would put it. And what they've ended up almost implicitly campaigned on is different views of Australia and different views of how we should engage our region. I don't think it's something either side thought they were going to get into at the beginning of the campaign, but it's sort of what's flowed out the back of the Solomon Islands issue. And as I said, moving from just talking about defence as an issue to broader international policy, to diplomacy, to statecraft, to foreign aid funding, and just relations with the region. 
I think it's really interesting too that we talk in terms of sub-regions. Very often in the election campaign, it's like we talk about Pacific or we talk about Southeast Asia and we don't talk a lot. I mean, Indonesia is one of our most important partners and yet it sort of gets bundled into a region uh, which carries its own sort of risks. But uh, Jennifer, I wanted to uh, get your views to you, what does the election campaign suggest about how Australian politicians or even, you know, the broader discussions that take place in the media, uh, what it suggests about how we, how Australians see our place in the region? I guess I think, um, so while China's being presented as this challenge for Australia, particularly over the last five years, and, um I think in terms of how we as a nation define our position in the region, I would say we play we see our place vis-a-vis China, right? We can't talk about anything else. We can't talk about the Pacific. We can't talk about Southeast Asia without referencing or bringing in China. So what does that, so in that, in with that in mind, at least that's my perspective, with that in my mind, are we defining ourselves always in conjunction vis-a-vis China. Whatever it is we do, we are trying to um, thwart China, trying to stop their tracks from making further making further tracks into the region. So I, I'm, you know, this is an open question for me and I'm, uh, I'm thinking about it, um, you know, constantly. So uh, I don't have such defined views as Peter does. Um, it's constantly circulating in my mind that, while in a previous era we seemed fairly comfortable as a nation in this Asia-Pacific region. We didn't have to make a choice between, you know, um, partnering with our traditional allies uh, or uh, partnering with traditional allies or the Asia, our Asian neighbours. But now I think the in some circles one would say, you know, um, how China has become or how they behave forces Australia to turn to traditional allies. So are we are we uncomfortable um, as our place in this Indo-Pacific, Asia-Pacific region, depending on, you know, whether you're academic or a uh, uh, um, uh, China observer? So I, I, I don't know. I don't have a, um, you know, a fixed view, but it's constantly circulating in my mind. But I would say, um, you know, having grown up in Sydney, um, and got done all my schooling and uh, here in Australia, the idea of multiculturalism really resonates with me, my family, and, you know, my my circle of friends and um, close acquaintances. And while we might say in 2017 um, under Malcolm Turnbull, he said, you know, multiculturalism is a soft power tool for Australia, we haven't used that. We haven't deployed that in any shape way or form that's recognizable so if if we are to um be the very best and uh showcase our talents why are we not talking about sort of a multicultural um society and i this this um may great with some but i think that is an asset that is a strength and we can use that in our in our discussion about foreign policy um if labor does wing on saturday um penny wong will be the first um you know ethnically chinese um person to be to take a foreign policy portfolio which is um really significant so i think that's something in that we ought to think about and celebrate um if that is the case 
But what we need to see in terms of the everyday, more Asian Australians, more Chinese Australians in position of leadership, making decisions that are going to affect our future, not just domestically, but also in the region. And we should be comfortable with, with that. That's a, a really interesting point. And I would note that Penny uh, Wong started uh, her presentation on Friday by talking about talking about a First Nations foreign policy, which really yeah. goes into the point that you're making there. And I think there are real risks uh, involved in only seeing partnerships in the region through the prism of strategic competition or through the, the, the prism of, of, of the China threat. And Labor has been talking, I think, about genuine partnerships. I think trying to pull, trying to trying to, to suggest that there are ways of developing relationships uh, with with other countries in the region that aren't just about what China's doing. Uh, so, Andrea, uh, I might get your views here. Uh, what, what do you think about uh, what the election tells us about our place in, in the region? Yeah, thanks, Beck. I think it shows that we're wanting, um, that we've been really myopic, that this campaign has been mainly played out on domestic issues and that there's three areas where the neglect of our role in the region has really showed up in how lacklustre this campaign has been. We've already spoken about the Solomon Islands, um, and I think it's embarrassing that as um, I think in the first debate, Anthony Albanese said it was the junior burger who was sent over to try and smooth out um, the diplomatic crisis that was unfolding there, uh, whereas America um, recognised the enormity of that deal and sent its most senior envoy over. Um, this is meant to be Australia's territory. We're meant to be keeping an eye on this region if you have that sort of hawkish view of um, foreign affairs, and yet it was left to the Americans to come in. The second area, I think, is um, what we've already spoken about with the soft diplomacy and the neglect that's been going on over time with um, repeated cuts to foreign aid budgets, including reducing our transmission of the ABC broadcast into um, Pacific nations, which was a, a real way to be able to uh, allow a prism into Australian culture and our role in the region. And there has been talk during this campaign about reinstating the ABC role there. But the third one is this huge disjuncture of climate leadership. Uh, when we look at the most important issues, and we haven't spoken about this here because this is predominantly a conversation around foreign policy and security, but the number one issue that Australians are nominating on a domestic level is climate change. And yet neither party has spoken about either of uh, have spoken about climate change very much. And we know that within the region, climate change is a really critical issue. There's island nations um, that are suffering from losing, uh, having rising tides, losing um, parts of their sovereign state as a consequence of those rising tides. And we have done nothing about that. And we're not even speaking about it to the domestic audiences. I'm talking about the two major parties. Of course, the Teal candidates, the independents have been speaking about it and the Greens have been speaking about it. 
And so um, it will be interesting to see whether we end up with an unprecedented large number of independents in the lower house because they are giving some airplay to what is a pretty important issue for most Australians. And I'm not just saying this is my personal opinion, but this is what data is showing us, whether you use the vote compass data or um, whether you look at other surveys that have been conducted during this time, that along with cost of living, Sarah is absolutely right there. That's a front of centre mind, but the uh, um, right up there almost, in fact, in some studies um, surpassing that is climate change and we're silent on it. And I'm glad that you mentioned that, Andrea, because climate change is absolutely a national security and foreign policy issue. Uh, there's no clear separation between uh, those, those different areas. Uh, and Sarah, I'd like to, to bring you in here. Uh, what's your view about this question about Australia's place in the region? Uh, I think it's really interesting. A few points quickly, something on what Jennifer was saying regarding the multicultural aspect. Um, I thought this was really interesting. While with Morrison, he tried to really um, key into this, at least at a really hyper-local level. Like there were lots of multicultural events where the, the tone of his address was like, you know, you've come to this country, um, some of you really recently, some of you for like, um, you know, long, long ago. And the reasons you love this country are at risk if Labor is like voted in like he really like hyper politicized this and it was a really really interesting way that he was sort of talking about like i understand these migrant communities and so on and i understand australia is really multicultural but all the reasons that you love this country that's only because of us it's only for the liberals and the coalition it's a really interesting point i think um on climate quickly as well i think that's a really interesting one that labor has also pointed out um could have led or at least if it's not causation like correlation to this whole summer island um failure um you know you had the fiji uh leaders in fiji saying with australia being really weak on climate change um they are pushing pacific nations towards china and then we saw two years or so after that comment what happened with solomon islands i think yeah labor has been you know trying to be to do both things be big on climate change but wear the hard hats and say they're you know um going to support mining and so on i think they're very scarred after 2019 where we saw climate change was this really big issue for so many australians and it still led to the coalition being voted in so i think that particular thing really like scarred different parties mainly labor i guess um really played towards the coalition and so on so that's had um foreign effects in terms of our place in the region i think this one is really interesting china's definitely everything is colored by china it seems in all our reporting all the time economics national security you know social stuff just everything but i do think on the labor side like even before the pandemic i do remember reporting a lot on you know penny wong and different members of labor saying look yes the chinese dynamic is really important but let's look at Indonesia let's look at this let's look at that like often trying to push um or, or widen maybe the perspective beyond this and they were saying that for a really long time like before some of the more most recent events um so I think that's really interesting so I think with labor and particularly with the people who have the purview of these portfolios Penny Wong particularly um there is a bigger I think they try to be more nuanced about it as well um try to be more all-encompassing not this it, the, it's China is the end all be all like not saying it's not important but it's for years I've been reading and reporting on labor speeches saying yes China's important but let's talk about but 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 so I think that's might be where there might be a little bit of differentiation between the two parties not saying that you know coalition doesn't care at all about the other countries uh Scott Morrison was saying just the other day at a Hindu uh council event that he wanted 
uh, an even deeper and more entrenched relationship with India. So he has been talking about it, but it's just the degree to which this has kind of formed the basis of what these parties have been saying, not just in the last six weeks, but um, before that. So, you know, and especially when it comes to China, as I was saying, it is this thing where when um, the coalition have talked about it before, up until quite recently, it's worked. It seems to have worked in their favour. They've made it this, we're hard on China, Labor soft on China and so on. And for a long time, up until the last two months, it's been this tactic that has worked for them. So I think they've got more of this narrow kind of view on this is the whole thing we want to talk about when it comes to foreign policy and our place in the world. And then really strangely, crunch time, an election, uh, it's kind of not worked out in the way they would have wanted. So it's a really interesting one. And I think there might be a few more differences between the two major parties and sometimes we realise in that way. Yes, and political parties can plan their campaigns, but you never know what events are going to crop up to derail all the, uh, all of that planning. Uh, so we are going to move into Q&A. So what I will do, actually, is I'm going to ask two questions and I'm going to um, take it to uh, the panel and I'll go in reverse order. So I'm going to start with you, Sarah. Uh, and this one is from John who asks, the election season has been shouting about military power uh, but has been disappointingly silent about soft diplomacy as a strategy to establish good relations with the countries of our region, ranging from China to ASEAN countries and around the Pacific. Could the panel comment on some initiatives in this area um, that would be valuable following on from the election, whoever wins? So we have talked a little bit about um, how uh, development and foreign aid uh, and other soft power mechanisms have been pushed aside, uh, but if the, the panel can give us a sense of what initiatives might be useful, that would be great. And I'm going to read a second question. I'm going to get two questions in for this round. And this is from Andrew. And this takes us to, back to the US alliance, which really hasn't had this. They're in lockstep, the major parties on the US alliance. So uh, since Morrison took us into AUKUS without assuring consensus on the question as required by the US, so whether or not there'd be bipartisan support, uh, we are circumscribed in our foreign policy more than ever. Indeed, we are now joined at both hips to the US, making us less credible in the region. Can Morrison's actions be justified? Very interesting. So, Sarah, I might start with you. Thoughts on those two questions? Um, so on the soft diplomacy, there was some stuff talked about, particularly by Labor um, in response to the like the Solomon Islands and the Pacific and the, like the foreign policy failure. And of course, they seized on that. It was a political thing, obviously, to do, but it's also had some really um, good stuff in there, including like getting, um, you know, Australian news and stuff back on the ABC airwaves. I mean, that has been something that for years has been like, why did we stop doing that? That was the dumbest thing. Um, and I think even if the Solomon's, this Pacific stuff up as it's been coined by Labor hadn't had happened um Labor still probably would have rolled this out uh, I think that's really important like a lot of these ties and stuff that we feel to other people is how we like often consume um or are just like surrounded by their culture or their people or their voices like that sort of soft power I think is really important so I mean I know I'm part of the media so me saying get media in there sounds like I think you know bias but I do think um that's such a key thing for the soft power um to you know to really be repaired i think in in the pacific you did mention china um that's a hard one obviously i mean the coalition hasn't even been able to pick up the phone with some of their counterparts so where you start even with soft power with china uh is an interesting one i mean they have been trying to be quite 
to differentiate between the CCP and Chinese Australians and have different speeches and initiatives for Chinese Australians. But um, on the Labor side, I mean, the coalition and so on have been big on Labor for, you know, have, having had meetings with Labor, uh, with uh, Chinese officials and so on. But I also think um, there have been uh, foreign policy experts and or people who've worked in foreign policy and so foreign affairs and so on who do think Labor could at least present a bit of a reset um, as much as it's been painted as this really bad thing that Labor might have closer relationships with um, some members of um, you know China uh, that could be a good thing that could be where like the softer power starts at least they can pick up the phone and have a conversation uh, if they're able to do that after the election would be so interesting because obviously we've been in the freezer so to speak uh, for so so long so I think that's where that starts and then on on america um yeah that's a big one especially after AUKUS, which was this big milestone thing obviously but it and of course the uk is also in that but the focus has been very much with the us i mean i think australia has been trying to change our language a lot uh the coalition at least and labor have been trying to say oh you know we they are this grand powerful ally but that we don't expect them to do all the heavy lifting and australia's you know this proud middle power and so on so in their rhetoric that they i think they've noticed that this whole thing of america being this big power that we seem to just be getting closer with and at least in a lot of their um their language they've noticed that um where we go from here we can't suddenly disjoin or anything i think that is only going to get closer especially as AUKUS comes to fruition we've only signed a piece of paper all of that is going to, you know, start start coming up. Um, so I, I don't think we're going to get any further or we're not going to, like, start getting further away from the US, especially with things that are going on in China and so on. So um, if it undermines relationships in the region, I do think that's collateral that probably both parties would be okay with, to be honest, just given the sort of risk and the risk profile that they've both been talking about for quite a few years and so on, that, yeah, they both I think are just of the of the mind that maintaining a really strong and close relationship with the US is, is like a necessity uh, regardless of maybe some of the optics at times. Andrea I might turn to you now for your views on those questions. Yeah I guess I would just repeat um, what I've already mentioned and back in what Sarah's saying that there needs to be a committed effort to um, have independent broadcasting services going into the Indo-Pacific to reinstate foreign aid that has really been neglected since about the 2014 budget. Um, as to the AUKUS agreement, I think that's got bipartisan support. The world's taken an illiberal turn over the last 15 years on most media and civil rights measurements. Uh, and with the developments in of Russia's incursion into the Ukraine, um, I don't think it's um, perceived by either of the major parties, that it's a negative having greater ties um, with our special strategic partnership with the US and the UK. Um, so while Andrew uh, thinks that we're joined at both hips, perhaps he's right, but I don't think you're going to get too much disagreement with that from the major parties. Uh, thanks, Andrea. And Jennifer? Um. I think so in my um, research catch up with my colleagues today we talked about um, the Pacific uh, and the difficulty of Pacific Islanders in coming to Australia. Um, they find it much easier to travel to Europe than it is to come to Australia. So with the ALP Pacific initiatives that they announced a couple of weeks ago 
you know, having 3,000 um, Sipka Islanders workers uh, being able to uh, achieve pathways to permanent residency or citizenship, that's a step that's using, um, you know, uh, showing our commitment to the region and allowing sort of that pathway to citizenship for um, the workers to come. And that's an important indicator of our um, trust and our ability to, you know, for lack of a better word, step up uh, in the region. So I think those initiatives indicate um, where Australia could do better and ought to do better. So labour mobility is really important um, and that's something that's key for a lot of Pacific Islanders who wish to come to Australia. In terms of um, the ABC, uh, as you know, both Sarah and Andrew have mentioned, that is one of those initiatives that is so important that demonstrates Australia's soft power, but their funding cut has just been, it, it, it's mind-boggling. So I'm um, glad to see that there's going to be a re-establishment um, of the ABC's um, presence in the Pacific. So I think those are issues of um, uh, Australia being able to re-deploy uh, its soft power initiatives and um, skill set. AUKUS, um, there's probably, Peter can probably speak to you a lot more on this, um, there's a lot of scepticism as to when the first submarine will be delivered, if it's going to be delivered on time. Is there going to be a cost budget blowout? Um, does Australia actually have the skill set capabilities and will it be able to develop those capabilities in time for the submarines to arrive on our shores uh, when it's most needed? So um, I understand the politicisation of the procurement um, strategies, you know, of why it needs to be built in Australia um, for job reasons, for electoral reasons, but it adds a huge amount of extra costs. So, I, yeah, so I, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, indeed. Pete, you've written a lot about, well, both of these questions. First, the need for an integrated kind of whole-of-government approach to national security and AUKUS. Uh, so take it away. Look, I think I'd like to start by um, pointing out the work of two other, you know, fabulous female academics that I know very well, Caitlin Byrne, who's done some really good work on basically the underfunding of diplomacy and, uh, and the withering away of DFAT's capabilities, but also Melissa Connolly-Tyler. And um, uh, she wrote a piece recently where she pointed out that if the last federal budget was $100, we'd spend six of our $100 on defence, 72 cents on development and aid, and less than a copper coin on the practice of diplomacy. So I think that really highlights how badly uh, we found ourselves in a position. And, and look, I have to say, this has been a bipartisan degrading of DFAT. If you go back to, you know, Kevin Rudd, a former DFAT, you know, um, person becoming prime minister, the cuts to DFAT and the, the shrinking of DFAT was occurring back then under the Rudd um, government as well, and has continued on through into the coalition government. Uh, hopefully we've seen an end to that. Hopefully we've seen um, a, a rebalance that's going to occur where we start to lead a bit more with diplomacy um, rather than leading with the defence force all of the time. Um, because the whole art of diplomacy is to actually stop us ever needing to use the defence force, which is that sort of, you know, insurance policy we have if, if the diplomacy part fails. So we should be focused on in investing more on diplomacy. 
I think this is because there's, you know, and if you go back to the, the defence minister's debate during this election campaign, which was rather more feisty than I have to say than the, uh, the, the foreign affairs debate, but what was taken out of there was that, that both sides agreed that we face really enhanced risks in our international environment. And I think generally speaking across the board, whether you're a, you know, a journalist like Sarah working on foreign affairs and defence to commentators like us to politicians, it's, it's a pretty unifying theme. And as Andrea said, you know, authoritarianism has, has made a real comeback and we've seen the decline of the liberal international order and liberal democracies. Um, so these are really big risks. We've seen the rise of geopolitics and geostrategy. We're seeing issues around supply chains and sovereignty of supply chains. We're concerned about oil and gas and energy. So these are really complex myriad of issues and you don't solve them by having disconnected policy. You don't have, oh, we're doing this over in defence here and this over there. It was, in fact, the last time we had a national security strategy, the thing that's supposed to unify all parts of the government into the direction to solve this was back in the Rudd government. And it hasn't been updated since. We've had a couple of updates to, to defence policy. We've had a, a foreign, foreign affairs white paper. But there's no real coordination. There's no what we call, as I mentioned before, that old-fashioned notion of statecraft, which is an integrated approach to governing national and, uh, affairs and conducting international relations. And I think this is also where AUKUS plays into it. Now, AUKUS is a pact, it's not an alliance. And if we leave submarines aside for a second, because, you know, I think we should, everyone's talked about submarines. The other parts of AUKUS are far more interesting. And that is basically the three countries agreeing to work on the eras of 21st century competition, artificial intelligence, hypersonics, cybersecurity, cyber you know, automation, um, all of these types of areas, which is where competition with China and Russia and other states will happen and will occur. And so what we really need to do is integrate not just foreign and defence policy and aid policy, but actually industry policy, um, you know, uh, education policy. Where are all the nuclear engineers going to come to maintain these nuclear submarines when they arrive? Well, the universities are going to have to train people to do this. So you're going to have to invest in universities. If we're going to do AUKUS properly, which is a research and development pact mainly and a technology transfer pact um, and a research and development pact, well, the US has really big research and development people who work for government on defence issues. We do not. Our Defence Science and Technology Group has less than 1,000 people and most of them are policy people and administrative people. They're not scientists. So, And the UK is in a similar boat. So they rely, we rely and the UK rely on the university sector. And I'm not talking about actually people like us. We don't get a lot of the funding of the social scientists. <laughs> um, in this, it's about the people in the engineering and the science who get the really big money to do the big science, medical research as well as a real key part of this as we've seen with the, with the pandemic. So you've got to start to integrate this stuff. And no matter who wins government on the weekend, the really big challenge they face is to sit down and think about, I think, what type of country do we want to be and what type of region do we want to live in in 20 or 30 years' time? And how do you motivate and organise all of the elements, our economic element, our trade element, our industry policy, our education policy, and how that works with international affairs as, as well? Because we live in a global village as much as we're starting to bifurcate it, I think a little bit between some of the authoritarian states and the more liberal democracies, it's still, as we know, we still do the majority of the trade with China. And over here in Western Australia, which I have to say, you know, Sarah's a, a good West Aussie as well. Um, you know, 50% of the GDP of our country comes out of ports in the north and northwest of Western Australia through the Indian Ocean. It's across that Indian Ocean barrier that all of our oil 
and petrol comes. And if that stopped, we would have seven days worth of fuel left in this country if no one drove a car and we gave it all to the police force, the fire brigade and the ambulance service and the defence force. And if we all kept driving, we'd all run out of fuel in about four days. But these are big, serious issues. You want government to look at them holistically. And that's not been happening. And I think that's where that comes in. On, on AUKUS, just for a second more, I think it was really bad short-term politics from the government not to brief Labor much earlier on. But I also, to give them their due, they knew there is no way in the wide world if Labor wanted to win this election that they wouldn't sign up with AUKUS when it came out. They could have given them 30 seconds notice before this, or in fact, they could have waited and told them after the press conference and the Labor Party would have signed up for it because look at what happened when Mark Latham was uh, running for Prime Minister and took a very uh, different view of this and a very sceptical view. They got hammered at the polls. And, of course, bipartisanship on the US alliance has been in the Labor Party going back to the late 70s, early 80s. Kim Beasley, now the Governor of Western Australia, was instrumental in ensuring that became a part of the Labor Party platform. And they've been very bipartisan on that ever since. And, of course, we know that the government, looking at the lower opinion polls, um, and the other opinion polls, you get anywhere between mid-70s to high-80s support from the Australian population for the US alliance. So I think the government knew that, that the country would go with them on this. They knew the Labor Party would go with them on this. Uh, and it, so it wasn't really much of a risk. And yeah, and leaving submarines aside as important as they are, the AUKUS Pact is a really important and big step forward for the way we do research and development and competition on those really key areas. And what we do have to do now is I actually think take advantage of that and how it flows into the rest of our economy and the, and the rest of the way that we do other things. And then also, just as importantly, how we do that and talk about those types of issues with India, with Indonesia, our South Pacific colleagues when we start talking about climate change. And the other thing we've got to do is if we have, I think, more soft power diplomacy, more, more diplomats doing their job, the government will be better informed about what the issues of the people in these regions are so we know what to talk to them about rather than turning up and talking about what's important to us because that generally doesn't get you very far when you go into a conversation and go, we're only interested in talking about this, China or whatever it might be where the South Pacific countries are like, well, we just want to talk about climate change because literally the water is lap lapping at our knees. You know, Peter Dutton made a joke about that on a live mic once and it didn't go down well. Um, it was a really poor piece of diplomacy, but it was actually a really accurate reflection of the challenges of the people in the South Pacific space because the water is lapping at their ankles. Can I jump in there and just make two very quick points off the back of Peter's comments? Yep. And that is all those policy areas that Peter's spoken about, um, linking those together is also migration. We've got a real neglect of um, skilled migration. We know compliments of um, Anthony Albanese, what the unemployment rate's like in this country now. It's at record lows. And if you're going to get that R&D development, then the borders need to be properly opened up and there needs to be some decent funding into our higher ed so that we don't get the brain drain going in the opposite direction. And the other thing I would say is um, there needs to be some consistency with ministers in these chief portfolios of defence and foreign affairs um, much longer than half a, a electoral cycle, which it has been for quite some time now. So there is some consistency in policy development and implementation. Yeah, this is a quick is... call away, Beck. If uh, the coalition loses on Saturday, Peter Dutton will fall into those group of very short-term um, defence ministers. If they win... 
my feeling is he'll stay in the portfolio. Seems likely he could become one of the longest serving ones. But we've had a bit of a revolving door of defence ministers in what is, to be honest, um, you know, and I think Sarah would support this, one of the most complex portfolios that the government has, generally given to a very senior um, person, yet pe people are, seem to be in there. It's a revolving door every five minutes. And how do you get continuity and how do you get the government to control the, the way the Defence Force spends money if you, unless you've got consistency? Especially when there are so many issues with procurement and things going wrong. Uh, I, might, um, I might ask three quick questions of our panellists before we wrap it up. Uh, so the first one is uh, the concern about um, the United Front work, so political candidates who, who, who might have connections with uh, the, unit front, um, the United Front work uh, in China. Is this uh, a substantial issue or is this just political theatre, this issue around political foreign interference. Um, the second is the Trumpization, I like that, of Australian election campaigns. Are we, you know, trending towards a, a more populist kind of approach in, in foreign policy and national security? And the third one is, do citizens need better literacy in foreign policy and national security? So I'm going to, um, to take it back around, starting with Peter, and our panellists can address what question they would like to address. So, Peter? Well, I'm going to stay away from the United Front work. They haven't come knocking at my door and I generally don't know what they do. So I'm sure Jennifer has a much better understanding of, of that part. So I'll skip over that. On the Trumpization, I don't know, as a, as a political junkie, I, I'm, you know, I've been working from home a lot and I work at home a lot watching during the election campaign live feeds of opposition leaders and prime ministers giving press conferences and the stuff that Sarah goes to as a bread and butter. Most people find that pretty boring, but I find it really interesting. Um, I think we've seen some flavours of it, but I think the interesting thing is the flavours of it are the things that haven't caused any traction. You know, um, I think when either side of politics has gone too far, when they've over-egged the pudding too much, the kind of uh, corrective from the, from the feel of the audience, as Sarah said, you know, the audible groan from the audience when Morrison went too far on China. Um, you know, at times in some of the debates, although there was one, one debate between the leaders' debate, I don't think anyone actually heard what was going on because they just shouted at each other um, so much. But you kind of got this reflective, you know, when Anthony Albanese kind of tried to, paint the Prime Minister or the Coalition as being too extreme on something, you get the same type of reaction. Um, I think this is the wonderful thing about compulsory voting is, is you're never going to get the polarisation in Australia that you do in America and the places that don't have compulsory voting because you do going to get people at the extremes. And if we look at the, the supporter bases of our two major parties, Labor Party tend to be very left-leaning in their, in their actual members of the Labor Party and the, and the Coalition seem to be much more conservative in their, in their grassroots people. But they know that doesn't get them elected. They know it's the swinging voters in the middle that are about this much that are going to listen, as, as Sarah and Andrea said, to, to issues of climate change, to issues of the cost of living, you know, um, and those type of housing policy and those types of things, and then a little bit around foreign defence policy um, that take it as well. So uh, I think because, you know, we're saved from that different, um, the extremes of that debate you see, I think, in the UK as well as we've seen a little bit as well, and others because we have compulsory voting. And I think that's one of the greatest strengths. I think we have two wonderful strengths in Australian democracy, that we still vote in person with a piece of paper and a pencil, which makes voter fraud 
almost nigh on impossible. And in the era of cyber attacks, like the whole idea of online voting should scare everyone in a democracy. <laughs> um, and the fact that we have, well, not compulsory voting, I always like to point this, compulsory voter registration. Because I have to admit that the first time I voted, I turned up, I signed my name off the roll, I got the piece of paper and I wrote on it, none of these idiots deserve my vote. You know, roll it up into a ball and stuck it in, you know, in the box and walked out in disgust because none of the local candidates who I all knew personally from growing up in the area, none of them appealed to me. Um, so uh, I think that really, really helps in that type of stuff. In terms of uh, uh, you know, the population not informed, I'm going to take a little bit of a different view. It's easy to say yes. But um, if you look at the lower opinion polls, which are done with average Australians, they've got, I think, a good sense or a feel about international issues at times. I think we've seen in this campaign they've got a good feel when it's an over-egging of the pudding about a Chinese spy ship or, or something like this. The interesting data has been how the from the Lowy Institute is how people's views of the concerns about China have changed significantly over the last five years, and that can't all be just media-driven. You know, I think it comes to substantial issues. I think they've looked and seen how China has changed under Xi Jinping since 2013 and 2014. They, they've got a good feel about the US alliance. Like the, the polls don't move, you know, radically, but when they move, they tend to move as they did dropping under Trump, um, you know, dropping under George W. Bush when things are unpopular, rebounding when things are going better for the United States and the world. And as we've seen at the moment, being a bit sceptical of where Biden is and where he's able to take the, the United States. So... It's almost like the voters have a little bit of a, a feel for this. Um, and so I think they're a little bit more informed than what sometimes we give them credit for, even though this may not be core, as Andrea said, bread and butter issues that change elections. I think they do take notice of what's happening in international affairs. They do think about how it reflects to their economy. They do to the economy and how it reflects and then for, therefore flows down into you know, the, the life that they lead and the choices that they make for their family. Um, and I think they do get, I think there is some forgiveness for the Prime Minister, for instance, about high petrol prices when you have a war in Ukraine. That's that's not their fault. The problem is when that flows into, you know, other cost of living, issue, cost of living issues. And for everyone in Australia who's got a mortgage or wants to ambitious have a, ambitiously want to have a mortgage to interest rate, you know, uh, interest rates and stuff like that. Uh, Jennifer, your views on any of those questions? Maybe just a quick comment on the United Front Party, um, uh, Works Department, sorry, United Front Works Department. Um, yes, they're an actor in the foreign interference um, realm um, and the Chinese Communist Party state does actively reach out to ethnic Chinese overseas. But I think, you know, linking some of the Asian Australian or Chinese Australian candidates, the United Front Workers Department is perhaps a stretch. Uh, I I would say, you know, last year we published a paper here in um, at the Lowy Institute, um, and there is a range of ethnic Chinese or community organisations that do fantastic social community work. And what we've seen in this election, the beating up of, you know, candidates appearing at a Chinese community function. Um, the community organisation not being registered. Uh, uh, I mean, the implication is these are fronts, these organisations are front for Chinese Communist Party state, which to my mind is a real, um, really unfortunate because some of these organisations, and once you start 
down that road, you paint all ethnic Chinese community organisations in that light. And it's, it's not the case, as we found in our research report where we interviewed, um, you know, dozens and dozens of Chinese community um, community leaders and um, leaders in their fields. So, yes, it's the United Front Workers Department is an actor, but I would say, you know, linking them to, say, Gladys Liu or other um, candidates is is far-fetched, at least in my mind. Thank you. Uh, Andrea, any thoughts, final thoughts from you? I love the Trumpism question, but I think that's a whole new webinar, um, <laughs> Beck. So I think you've got your work cut out for you there. Uh, as to greater literacy around foreign policy, I'm never going to argue against knowledge, more knowledge. So I say yes to that one. Um, and the other thing I would note with foreign in, or allegations of foreign interference, Australia has one of the most lax um, money politics regimes in the world in uh, liberal democracies. But we did make a different a change to the Foreign um, Donations Act in 2018. And that's with this um, uh, lens of concern about influence coming from offshore. So I think it's a real concern. I'm not speaking directly to um, the United Front Workers Department, but just that we um, as a nation are becoming more mindful about foreign interference in our politics, and I think we need to be. Excellent point. Thank you, Andrea. And point taken on the Trumpization, future <laughs> webinar coming to you soon. But, Sarah, your thoughts? All right, I'll try to make it quick. Uh, Trump, I, the Trumpization, uh, you know, standing in a very boring press conference with either ScoMo or Albo, someone who doesn't feel very rah-rah, but definitely the uh, the rallies, I think, are the areas where you really see that, um, particularly the Liberal rally. There was a Liberal rally that was really, like, it felt like, can you hear the rumble kind of moment? And, like, there was all this. I think it really, even the journalists were a bit like, where are we? Like, it was really crazy. So, the most I've saw, seen that on the trail has been in the rallies or the launches, uh, but otherwise sometimes in the press conferences and so on, I still find it, yeah, very much the same as it's been for a lot of my colleagues, especially here who've been here for you know, decades. Now, um, up front, also agree with Jennifer. I do think it's a bit far-fetched. I think it's also a bit dangerous with stuff like this because there's like a lot of racism when it comes to this. We saw that very clearly with the PM when he was with Gladys Liu and there was that ridiculous stunt with um, Kim Jong, this Kim Jong-un impersonator that was like a vote for Gladys Liu's, a vote for the Communist Party. It was like just atrocious. It was really, really atrocious. Um, the tiny side point I'd mention, and I like don't like to mention it large because I do think mostly um, this is just very dangerous for racism, but it was interesting with Gladys Liu, we did ask her about, are you concerned about the CCP and the rise of the CCP? And just some very basic questions like that. Um, and she every single question was talking about Chinese Australians and didn't want to engage in the debate about um, the communist, um, the Chinese Communist Party, which was interesting. But again, I think that those sorts of things shouldn't be blown up too much because as we saw with that impersonator, it leads to like just the most insane racism and stuff. That's just, yeah, pretty horrific. Uh, and then when it comes to uh, information out there on foreign policy. I reckon there's heaps. You've got like three people here who all produce like such insanely good things. But I think the problem is like we're really overwhelmed. I think a lot of readers and Australians are overwhelmed in a lot of areas where there's a lot of information like climate change and renewables and hydrogen. I know a lot of journalists who are still trying to figure out what hydrogen is, you know. <laughs> the information is out there though. Um, I do think it's just about you know, having the patience to maybe try a few different things, whether it's Lowy, whether it's stuff Peter or Jen or Andrea do, you listen to a podcast and you'll find 
um, you'll find that. I do really believe as a journalist who, you know, I love the work we do in journalism, but I do read a lot of, like I said, Peter's work and, and Jen's and all of that. There's heaps out there. It's like such a rich space. I, I wish I had more time as a journal that has deadlines. I don't, but there's so much. So I think it's just about if you can, giving yourself some patience, some space, trying out a couple of things. And I reckon you'll find some like 10 out of 10 stuff and hopefully the public can all navigate their way through all of these amazing sources of info that we have out there. So I think that's me done. Excellent point. Now, I know we are slightly over time, but very, very quickly, I would like to hear from our panellists if they have a prediction about what is going to go on on Saturday. I, I'm advocating not for democracy sausage, but for democracy sausage roll. I think we need a new campaign around that personally. So, Sarah, I might start with you. What's going to happen on Saturday? Like what? who will win? Is that, what, you, is that what you're asking? Uh, look, I think it's a scary thing for us in the press gallery to say it seems like Labor's going to win because it just feels like deja vu. Like I think we're really scared to say that. Um, but in pretty much every bureau of every, you know, public broadcasters to all the private corporations and so on, pretty much everyone in every bureau is starting to say that. Um, that they think Labor's going to win it's for a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of analysis about different seats. Uh, the Liberals are kind of getting it from both sides. They've got some really hot competition from Labor, but also there are some seats that they could very, very possibly lose to independence, and then that means they're just not going to get that majority. So, look, I like I said, loathe to say it, don't want to say it, but I'm going to, which is that I do think Labor um, has a very good chance of winning this one on Saturday. That's what I reckon. Bring on Saturday. Let's see us all be wrong again, I guess. Uh, but that's what I think is going to go down. Okay, Andrea, any predictions you, you're prepared to make public? Yeah, I've already made them public on below the line. <laughs> so uh, I'll put a caveat on this. I made a prediction um, 2019. I got that wrong, but I was going off the opinion polls back then. Um, I think it's probably going to be a Labor victory. Uh, lots of reasons also. Uh, we seem to have forgotten about how much um, Scott Morrison's own people were turning on him just before this campaign began with some of those very nasty leaks. Mm. But he's, he's this time around he's got a bit of a, a women's problem um, and I, women have started to vote as a block more progressively um, and also they've been in power for nine years. It's not common in modern Australian politics to get a fourth term in government. So I think it's probably with Labor but... We do know the polls have been out in the past and um, there is that big independent factor. I think the swing voters you are alluding to before, Peter, I think that margin's got bigger than what it has in the past. So let's see. Jennifer? Oh, I won't deviate too much from the norm here. Probably a Labor, part, uh, labor win, perhaps um, by a small margin, um, given what Andrea said about the independence. So... Um, yeah, uh, I'll, I won't count my chicken before it's hatched. <laughs> That's smart, I think. And Peter? Uh, look, I think it, um, despite the national polls, it's going to come down to a little bit of a seat-by-seat -seat contest. Um, however, when you look at the list of, um, of marginal electorates and you go down that list, Labor needs seven to form government in its own right. Um, those under 4% from the last election... Um, there's eight, basically, that Labor could particularly uh, pick up and one independent. 
I think that might sneak them over the line because the the Teal Independents and others generally sit in more safe Liberal seats. But I I really think I I find it difficult to find a pathway for victory for the coalition at the moment between the Teals and Labor picking up seats. Um, So you're either going to get a a hung parliament or a very narrow um, victory uh, for Labor if it if it goes down that path. Or if you look at the national polls and you apply that that swing uniformly, it's going to be a pretty handsome win. For Labor, I think it'll stick somewhere in the middle. So I think Labor are going to win, not as much as what the polls say um, by, but enough to form government. And I think what's going to be fascinating is uh, is the teal seats. And will people like Josh Frydenberg and Tim Wilson, Trent Zimmerman, all, all still be in Parliament? And if that happens and the coalition loses, uh, it'll be very fascinating to see what happens to coalition politics in opposition, particularly if Josh Frydenberg's not there to, I think, contest with Peter Dutton for the leadership. Beck, you're not off the hook. What are you saying? Well, I've been saying uh, that it's going to be a hung parliament for a long time. Uh, I'm starting to change my view on that a little bit. But, I mean, as Sarah mentioned, i got bad memories from 2019, you know. It's like, and I'm not sure I trust the polling either. And the independent factor does make me... Uh, cautious in 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 predicting anything but yeah I'm going to go with a narrow Labor victory now I think but that's all we have time for in fact we've run over time that I think just goes to show how fascinating and rich the discussion was so I'd like to thank Peter Sarah Jennifer and Andrea for joining me tonight thank you to our wonderful audience for for tuning in and for asking those very insightful questions uh, and uh, you will be emailed the links uh, when they are ready if you have registered for this event uh, so thank you uh, and have an excellent election Saturday. I know I will. Thank you again.